Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 230. This week, we talk with Sharad Agawal about load balancing options in Azure, and we deep dive into Azure Front Door. Dark all the things. The war over ebooks. And find out if Carl and I are getting the new iPhone. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. Today we have Shared Argawal, product manager for the Azure Front Door Service. And hopefully I got your name pretty good. How's it going, Shared? Hey, thanks so much. Yeah, a, yeah, pretty good. I mean, I've seen so many other variations, but yeah, <laughs> you're pretty, pretty, pretty spot on, I would say. Yep, yep. Uh, and Carl, we still have stickers. We still have stickers. So send us an email uh, with stickers in the subject line and your name and address in the body to M- uh, feedback at msdevshow.com and I'll send you out some. Perfect. And then one thing that I did want to follow up on in the last episode, we were talking about uh, different hardware and basically what laptop I was going to get for a, uh, for a refresh. And what I ended up settling on, I was, uh, I was originally thinking I was going to wait for any potential announcements that are happening in October. And I don't have any insider knowledge, so I can just say, you know, I don't know what's getting announced uh, by Microsoft. I know there's an event on October 2nd that was public. Um, but internally, we have to wait a few months generally to get the hardware because we want our customers to get it first. So I started looking around for other options. And basically what I found was the Dell, they call it the new XPS 13 2-in-1. So um, it's basically an Ultrabook. And this thing is like pretty loaded for an Ultrabook. I mean, for weighing three pounds, it's got 10th gen quad core processor. It's got 32 gigs of RAM, which is pretty amazing for a laptop. Um, it's got a terabyte of SSD storage. So the, and it's also got a 4k uh, touchscreen on it. So this thing is like, it is fully tricked out. And, uh, so that is currently on order. I don't have it in my hands yet. Whenever I get it, then I'll, I'll basically provide a full review, but I'm pretty excited about this thing. And I like that the screen flips around because this will also be good for, uh, watching movies on a plane, uh, which is great. Cause then I don't have to take multiple devices or I don't have to watch them on my phone. So I feel like this device does everything and it does have USB-C. It comes with a, an adapter, but I use a, a GAN power adapter, a 60 watt uh, power adapter, and uh, it will be able to charge this. So I'm pretty, uh, pretty excited about that. How much is it for? I mean, have you? Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's it basically, I don't, you know, the, the Microsoft, like we get a deal on it, uh, but the Dell price, like on their website, I'll have a link to this in the show notes, but it's $2,700. So it's pricey. I mean, it's no like 15 inch Mac pro, like fully loaded (laughs) pricey, but, um, I think it's actually, I mean, it's a pretty good deal. Like I said, this thing is pretty tricked out. Uh, 32 gigs of Ram is, I feel like a lot on a, on an ultra book. Um, and then like they said, the fact that it has a quad core and a super fast hard drive in it, I mean, this thing should be able to like hold its own um up against just about three years as well yeah that's the thing like i a lot of people on my team you know uh, they're just they they make this like quick decision like oh i'll I'll get this device you know this thing that we just announced or whatever and i don't know sometimes the thing that's like super sexy is not the thing that is like designed to you know take the test of time uh so this this device here i feel like it's 
if I feel like it's overly specced in the short term. And in three years, I'll be like, you know, Hey, I can, I can, I can get to, you know, especially that last year, you know, get through that home stretch. I feel like the specs will, will kind of keep things going. So I feel pretty good about this choice here. Thanks so much. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. So what do we have for the uh, comment of the week, Carl? Yes. This week's comment comes to us from Twitter. Uh, Kendall Roden reached out to us and said, love starting my morning with the MS dev show. Well, thank you very much. We love putting out content for your morning. If you want to get mentioned on the show, like Kendall, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on our website or on Twitter. We especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. So I actually met Kendall in person. She is one of the co-hosts of the Azure podcast, which is a really good podcast. They have I don't know how they do this, but they have six hosts <laughs> and then sometimes they will have guests and I don't know, there's like 50 people in an episode. No, it's not that crazy, but um, they do have some redundancy built in, uh, which is kind of nice. So if, uh, That's why if the, yeah, the go names ahead. sounded familiar to me. I've yeah. been on Azure podcast. Oh, you've been on there. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And they're great. I mean, the thing is like, I kind of expected, this is going to sound really bad, but there's like six people on it. Right. And I'm just like, Oh, there's probably like two people that do like the heavy lifting. And then there's like four people that are just, you know, I don't know, just on the show. Cause like everybody's trying to like jump on, but they are all really good. And you'll have an episode where all six of them have like a, a 10 minute segment and they will all be really good. So I've been, I was really impressed. So, um, I do recommend checking out their, uh, their podcast. It's also a really great podcast. So thank you, Kendall. Uh, okay. And then we have a couple news stories. So the first one here is uh dark reader Chrome extension. Um, did you know about this before I mentioned it to you, Carl? Not this particular one. Oh, I know okay. that you've been going kind of all out. I've been going dark. dark. <laughs> I've gone dark. Yeah. I've been trying to dark mode all the things. And, uh, so, you know, one note for the Mac finally is dark. Um, iOS, uh, outlook for iOS now finally has a dark mode, which looks amazing. If you have Gmail for iOS, what was that? Gmail for iOS. Yeah. That's a dark theme. Yeah. So in, and, and actually iOS 13 itself now has, has a, a dark mode for the operating system as well. And what's really great is if you have a phone like the, the more modern iPhones with OLED screens, you want things to be black uh, because that the pixels aren't turned on. And I guess the energy savings isn't that significant, but it just looks amazing. Like if you're, if you're looking at your phone in the dark, for example, it's not just blinding you with this super uh, bright light. So I think it looks amazing on an OLED screen and it makes the black bl- uh, blend in with the, uh, with the rest of the phone. But anyway, I, um, I was like, you know, everything is black and now Slack is black. Um, like everything is black except everything I open my browser is super bright. How do I fix this problem? So I searched around and I found an extension that works shockingly well, which is the dark reader Chrome extension. And basically it, uh, you know, figures out, I don't know exactly how they do it, but they, they make the pages like look good in dark mode. So for example, I mean, I still have the page open from, uh, from Dell showing, uh, this laptop and, uh, and, and it's in, it has a black background and like it, it has basically made this page like perfect in dark mode. And to me, the page actually looks way better than what it looks like whenever it's all white. So I am really digging it. It works way better than I expected. And, um, if you want to go dark on everything, this is a good way to do it. And then I always have a dark background on my computer. So essentially like, it's just the whole thing is nice and dark. And, um, and then I don't have to get, uh, blinded by everything, which is, which is just super cool. So I recommend checking that out. Have you tried it yet, Carl? 
No, I didn't. Uh, and here's one thing why, because I've actually on my work PC, mm-hmm. I've been using the Chromium version of Edge, and I forgot that I enabled to uh, download uh, uh, where I can download extensions from the Chrome yeah, Store. Exactly. I initially thought I couldn't use this, but I actually can. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the key part is you actually click Add to Chrome. And then it adds it to edge. Right. <laughs> exactly. And then you can turn off on a page by page basis, the, uh, the dark mode, uh, which is good because some pages it does not do a, a good job with. Um, I, I know that for a while, uh, outlook.com was just horrendous with a lot of the dark theming ones, but outlook.com has a dark mode. So basically, um, that's like a page where I've turned it off because it will darkify a dark theme. Um, but then the, you know, it it really hasn't been designed to work like that. So I turn it off on, on pages that are already dark and then, uh, and then they, they tend to look a little bit better, which is good. Okay. Moving on, uh, power toys released. Yeah. So I, we had mentioned this in the past that there was a version of power toys coming out and that was being open source, but there's now it's first, uh, release in the Microsoft store. So you don't have to go to GitHub and download it, compile it, make sure that you had all the right stuff in visual studio. You can just give it a go. And the first two things are, uh, this overlay that'll pop up. That'll show you all of the shortcuts in windows. So if you forget what different shorts cut, cuts are like windows period to bring up uh, emoji. Uh, you can bring up that menu and it'll show you. And the other one um, they're calling fancy zones, not really uh, huge on the name, but if you're uh, used to like snapping windows to the left or right, where they take up half the screen or up and down uh, get them in the, the quadrants or whatever, um, fancy zones gives you more customization over that. So you could do like, uh, three windows side by side, maybe three windows side by side, but the biggest one a little bit wider, uh, they let you, uh, customize those zones that you have. Um, and it does a really good job. Uh, I found a few issues if you're having, cause I run three monitors and it has a little bit of problems, uh, with that. It still works on one really well, but not all of the other ones. But uh, once again, this is its first release. So open up some issues and let's make this thing better. Super cool. I always loved Power Toys. A whole bunch of really good stuff came out of there. So it's good to see this. And a lot of times it gets in the past got pulled back into Windows proper. So Mm -hmm. excited to see what happens with some of the features that are developed here. Yep. Okay. And then uh, Apple made a whole bunch of announcements. And I think what we're going to focus on is the, uh, the iPhone announcements. And we're not going to talk about a whole bunch, but I can do like a super quick summary, which is basically a uh, better camera. And now there's three lenses. Um, so now there's a, um, there's also some new stuff that they're doing in software. They're really taking advantage of, uh, of machine learning and pulling in a lot of sensor data and basically combining all that and doing all the tricks that could be done uh, through computational photography. So they have a new low light, low, low light mode. Uh, now that they have a wide sensor on there, they're able to, uh, to, you're able to take super wide pictures and you can also recrop photos that you've taken, which is really crazy. Uh, so if you miss somebody in a photo, you can actually recrop it, uh, which is cool. And then one of the things that I'm most excited about as far as the camera is the 60 frames per second HDR mode. Uh, so that's 4k at 60 frames per second. Um, and they're basically giving you um, more color range, which is which is pretty cool. I can't wait to play around with that because I always do 4K, 60 frames per second video, and the better you can make that, um, I'm pretty excited about that. Because the 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 iPhone camera honestly is like one of the best video cameras that you can buy. 
Um, and, it, and you and I, I know Carl, we're talking off the show. It's also has, I've, I've watched a lot of comparison videos of like external mics for the iPhone as well. And it has one of the best microphone systems in it as far as sound. So, th- I mean, this thing is just like a killer camera. It's pretty amazing that you can get, you know, like one of the best video cameras and the, some of the best audio that you can buy. And it's just like in your phone always with you. So that's pretty cool. Um, also better battery life. Um, so the stats that Apple saying 20 hours of video playback, which is really amazing. And I've, I've, I have the uh, XS right now, um, the XS max. And, you know, I used it, I think on an international flight and I watched tons of movies and I was pretty shocked at how the thing just like held its own. And this is supposed to be five hours more, um, battery than the, than the previous gen. The new one has five hours more, uh, 12 hours of streaming video, and then uh, 80 hours of audio, which I'm actually kind of surprised it's that low. I'm guessing, I'm guessing this thing just has 80 hours of battery life. Period, like doing nothing because <laughs> audio <laughs> takes pretty much no power. And then the other notable thing that I know uh, we wanted to mention here was they're switching from a five watt to an 18 watt power adapter. Um, and the phone itself now you can do a 50 percent charge in in 30 minutes. So it's it's nice that they're not. Uh, they're no longer including that super tiny adapter that takes for forever to charge. So, and then you have a note in the show notes. I know Carl about the, the GAN chargers. Do you know if, if the Apple charger is a GAN charger or did you just want to talk about GAN chargers in general? I just wanted to uh, bring it up because uh, on the day of release um, uh, or the pre-order last Friday, mm-hmm. I got uh, a bunch of emails. Uh, one of them was from anchor and uh, one of them was from Amazon that were talking about new chargers to get with your, your new smartphone. And mm-hmm. they were all the gallium nitride chargers. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought it was really interesting because you had done a bunch of research uh, earlier this summer to get uh, one for your laptop. And uh, I think the one for anchor is it's a half inch thick. It's a little bit tall and wide, mm-hmm. but for something being slim, being able to put in your pocket or a backpack and the fact that they're super light, um, uh, being able to deliver 30 watt for the anchor case. I, I think that's just really important uh, to get that thin, light, super powerful uh, charging because I mean, to be honest, a few of us in our daily lives outside of work, like do stuff on computers, it's all on our phones. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one device that we have. You always want to make sure it's topped up or at least not dying. Yeah. That 50% charge in 30 minutes that excites me for, for traveling. Um, being able to like plug, actually plug in. Cause you know, you see people like stuck to the chargers at like airports and stuff um, to actually get like a 50% charge in 30 minutes to me sound, you know, that seems like pretty significant to, to really be able to top off in, in that amount of time. I am curious, like how heavy and big their adapter is their 18 watt power adapter, because yeah, like you said, I mean, these, these GAN chargers are really amazing. I mean, mine, just to put it in perspective, it's a 60 watt charger. So it's good enough for a Mac pro. And it's basically the size, if you think of how big a five watt iPhone charger is, it's the size of two of those and basically the same amount of weight. So it's, I think it's a the game thing changer. that's like counterintuitive about these is the weight piece, because we had talked a few years ago about like counterfeit chargers, mm-hmm. how they had just like really skimped on the parts. And you could tell because, you know, the good ones were heavier. Right. Well, now the ones are kind of <laughs> indistinguishable potential knockoffs. So Shara, do you have, um, are you an iPhone guy or Android? Yep. I'm an iPhone guy. Okay. Uh, you get the new one? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'll see. I'll wait for the feedback. One of the key things I was waiting for was the maybe uh, USB-C charging. Yeah. That was, 
because I also have an Android phone. I mean, I mean that I use when I'm traveling or stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, using the the common stuff is it gets easier versus carrying two ch- different chargers. Yeah, yeah, that was disappointing. I, yeah, I, I was really hoping that they would do that because I'm looking at getting some accessories that could potentially be, you know, on any phone. And I don't want to have to buy something, uh, an accessory for my phone that would be um, stuck to lightning if the next upgrade I do is going to be to USB-C because mm-hmm. what I'm looking at is kind of pricey and I'm going to hang on to that for quite a few years. So not going to USB-C was a real bummer for me this time around. Mm-hmm. And it comes with a USB-C to lightning cable. And I don't, I, I swear I was looking for that type of cable at one point and they were really hard to find. Um, I don't know if I ever got any, do you have any of these Carl USB-C to I lightning? Have, and I think the only one at the time was through Apple itself. Okay. So they did, they did have one, huh? They did, but I was trying to find a third party one and it's, it was pretty hard uh, about a year ago because okay. that was when I got my surface go. Cause that, um, has USB-C and I wanted to. Uh, use that to pair my phone. Okay. Cause what I'm thinking, I want that cause then I could actually, ch- I could charge the phone from my laptop uh, over USB-C or I could just plug directly into the power adapter for my laptop. And then that's all I need. I literally just need that one charger. And then for everything else, you know, I have the anchor charger, but I'm even looking at like how I can drop some weight on that thing. So there might be some options where I could do like a two port USB-C or something like that. So I mean, I'm getting pretty close to zero pounds on all the accessories, which is which is really nice. I was also hoping they they'll, they'll also talk about the uh, charging another phone using wireless, like or charging your pods, yeah. Putting on the phone, something like that the rumors were saying, exactly yeah, yeah. The rumors were talking about that, and I don't know. I guess there's some speculation that like the hardware's in there, and they just cut the software. So that might be something like NFC, where you know they could just like turn it on later. Yeah, um, that would be. Um, I don't know. That would be, that would be interesting. I think it would, there's certain times that it would be useful, especially like I've heard of the AirPod example where you can charge like your AirPods with it. Cause there's nothing worse. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing worse than like you go, you like go somewhere and it's like, all my AirPods are dead. And you're like, okay. (laughs) The Um, fact that the AirPods have their own case with a battery isn't so bad, but the watch is a good example. Yeah. 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 That would be, um, and actually what would be kind of interesting so does that mean if that worked, then you could plug in your phone and then use it as, oh my God, that would actually be amazing. You could actually use it as the charger, right? Yeah. <laughs> for all your other stuff. That would be really cool. Oh, that would not, be really good for your nightstand. I wasn't disappointed about that feature being missing until now. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds super useful because I, I carry a separate charging pad just because it's so convenient to have a pad where you just seat your phone on it. But if I can plug in my phone and charge my watch and charge all this other stuff, that's pretty cool. So, well, that's disappointing. Um, and then we're pretty much going to skip everything else. I mean, the only thing I saw that I thought was a little compelling was the new Apple Watch um, has the um, uh, display that's always on, but uh, it's not really worth four or five hundred bucks to <laughs> just to pay for that uh, for that additional feature. Um, okay, any other Apple comments, or should we move on? Let's move on. Okay, why angry librarians are going to war with publishers over eBooks? Yeah. So if we look at like throughout time, his uh, library libraries have been around for ages and uh, you know how they've worked in the modern era is, you know, they buy a bunch of books and they lend them out. Um, One of the trends that's going on now though, is uh, some of the publishers are feeling that libraries lending out books are cutting into their sales. So they're limiting the number of books that libraries can purchase to one. 
and that might not sound so bad, but uh, because I live in a small area where there's 3,000 people and a library. Well, that might make sense for that. But if you're in New York City or London or something like that, and to have your main huge library that covers millions of people with one ebook for a particular copy, yeah, uh, that's pretty rough. I mean, that library probably would have bought, I don't know, dozens of, of copies otherwise to make them available. So uh, luckily for us, libraries are starting to push back against the publishers as they're trying to uh, move forward with uh, these kinds of things that are enabled through DRM. Mm-hmm. They could have a uh, remote video service where there's like a camera on the physical book and then you push a button and it physically changes the pages. <laughs> like this whole thing is, I mean, that's just how absurd all of this is though. Um, I mean, they're willing to pay for them. And like you said, libraries lend out books. Like that's, that's the thing that they do. Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel bad if, if all of a sudden people aren't making enough money to like make books, then obviously that's a problem and we need to figure, we need to solve that problem. But I don't know. This is, this is challenging. Um, okay. And then the next one here. So the next one is actually a comic from, uh, from Google. Are we going to talk about this one, Carl? Yeah. So I think we're just going to mostly put this out as a comment, uh, for if you're interested in learning more about what machine learning is, mm-hmm. uh, there's a pretty lengthy comic and it, this is all one page. So if you go to our show notes and click on the link, um, it, it's a pretty good, uh, uh, comic, but it takes like, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minutes to read and it goes over like not only what the capabilities of machine learning are, but roughly how it works and how, you know, uh, you know, machine learning adapts and learns over time, mm-hmm. uh, through, uh, a main character who's relatable, uh, a robot and a cat. Uh, who <laughs> speak. So it's kind of fun. There's, there's charts, there's graphs that are all part of this. Um, but I think it's done very well to help you understand if you're not into machine learning, uh, maybe it would give you enough of an edge to take the edge off of like being afraid of, you know, being able to jump in. Yep. And it even goes through like uh supervised, unsupervised reinforcement learning, all of those things. And I, I, actually, I thought it was really entertaining, even though I knew like most of this, um, I thought it was pretty entertaining. And then the, also this concept of like, you know, Hey, I can write code that solves that problem. And then basically turning that in this giant spreadsheet with all these different dials and turning the knobs. I mean, it sort of, it just made it, um, I don't know. It just made it, it just sort of solidified it in my mind, how it all works. So I just thought it was, uh, I thought it was really cool. Um, okay. Well, let's get to our guest now because, uh, he wrote a, uh, blog post and that's, that's how we initially found him. So it was, uh, basically how to, um, it was an overview, of all the different load balancing options. And he made this amazing flow chart, um, because there's a whole bunch of options. We have the Azure load balancer, traffic manager, application gateway, Azure front door. And if you're trying to figure out what load balancer to actually, you know, put in front of your stuff, um, it's gotten complicated. So we, we just really appreciate this article. So we reach out to him and, uh, let's, uh, so let's talk about that. Um, so I guess what we should start with is what do load balancers do in Azure? Let's stick with basics. So uh, typically you use load balancers to uh, distribute traffic across your different uh, application um, deployments. Now it could be deployments, could be different thing. You're running different instances in a VM or different instances running in different containers and things like that. Or you're uh, actually load balancing between your application endpoints located in one 
let's say, uh, one Azure region versus the other Azure region or multiple instances, uh, multiple deployments within uh, the same region, but having just dif different endpoints to it. So load balancing typically works at different levels. So you're load balancing at your, within the uh, app one app deployment versus across different app deployments for when you want high availability and failover and those kind of things. Okay. So uh, from that perspective, we have uh, Azure Load Balancer and Application Gateway, which work at a regional level uh, contained for when you have entities within your VNet, when you're trying to load balance between, let's say, your VMs or uh, virtual machine scale sets or uh, containers and things like that. And uh, versus when you look at a little more global scale, when you're trying to load balance between entities across different regions, you look for something like Azure Front Door or Traffic Manager uh, to, to load balance the traffic. Now, interesting thing to note between uh, that is like a traffic manager is actually a DNS-based load balancing system. Mm -hmm. So other than uh, it, it doesn't really work at like as per the OSI model of sorts. I mean, it's not, uh, so it works at the DNS level. Uh, and so not specifically at layer three, layer four or layer seven. So, yeah. Yeah, that's always the key thing that I tell people about traffic manager. Like, hey, this is, this is provide this is doing all of this through DNS. And and I think it's really important to know that because if you don't know that, then it, you know, I I think I think knowing that helps you understand like why some things don't happen instantaneously. There's just a whole bunch of stuff out of the control of that. Yep. But also like that also gives it super insane high reliability, for example, because the DNS system is designed to be uh super reliable on the internet. So it's it's definitely good to know that. Yep. Yep. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Raygun provides full-stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full-stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes dramatically improve the online experience of your users. When I look at a lot of other Azure services in general, it's usually pretty easy to guess what they do because you have like Azure Firewall and, you know, it's very descriptive of what it does. But here we have four different products for load balancing. How do I start figuring out which service to use uh, and what options each of them might have? Yeah. A great question, man. Uh, so the first thing uh, we talk about is um, what kind of traffic you want to you're looking at. What kind of uh, workload that you're running? So is it uh, HTTP, HTTPS? That is layer seven, or it's rest of it. So the typical bit, and why it's so much focus on layer seven is because you get a lot of other lot of benefits that you can drive from a layer seven load balancer. Like you can do SSL offload. You can run your uh, web application firewall. You can do uh, interesting routing decisions based mm -hmm. on, let's say, path. Um, you can do header stuff, header uh, addition, removal, things like that. Maybe uh, even routing decisions based on header uh, and things like that. Um, session affinity, basically targeting users to a particular endpoint based on what uh, session cookie they're using. So a lot of benefits you get being a layer 7 service. Whereas for non-layer uh, seven service, then you have uh, you can work with something like uh, load balance Azure load balancer, or you can use traffic manager because they can work at that layer as well. So so that's the first criteria or segregation that we make between okay application gateway and Azure front door layer seven load balancer avail the benefits of a layer seven or HTTP HTTPS load balancer versus for non uh, layer seven traffic 
you can use uh, Traffic Manager or you can use uh, Azure Load Balancer. The other segregation we make is uh, in terms of global versus regional. So like I said, if you're deployed, if your application is deployed within a virtual network or it's in a, uh, it's in a region and you're trying to just load balance between your VMs or your containers and things like that, um, then you can use application gateway and Azure Load Balancer uh, to load balance between them. Versus if you're looking for, uh, if you're actually a very um, uh, reliant on, like for example, you want much more higher availability that you, in bad cases, you're able to fail over from one region to another, you can use um, Front Door or you can use Traffic Manager. Uh, Front Door also gives you, Front Door is a service that runs from the edge of Microsoft's network. So we have this huge uh, 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 network out there in the world. We're the second largest network out there. And so what happens is you can get your traffic accelerated from the edge. So it also gives, not just gives you faster failover and load balancing across regions, but you can also get a lot of traffic performance boost uh, using uh, Azure Front Door. Uh, DNS-based systems like Traffic Manager or other DNS load balancers, uh, like you were mentioning earlier, uh, that uh, it's actually, uh, it cannot give you 100% failover in a predictable time frame. You can see a lot of failovers happening based on DNS uh, requests, but not every ISP, not every browser, not every client uh, updates their DNS based on the TTLs that you set on your domains. Mm-hmm. They they update the DNS for their own like, policies or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, so the failovers may not happen. Uh, so let's say the 100% failover might take an hour or something. Whereas with things like front door, uh, it, the failover may happen under 30 seconds, very predictably across regions. Same thing, like uh, if you're looking at, uh, let's say, uh, application gateway, then between your VMs, it can fail over pretty fast. Yeah, so can you explain, so the, the Azure front door, I've, I've had this explained a few times and, and maybe you can get it into my head a little bit better. Because um, you were talking about how you connect to a local endpoint or the user connects to a local endpoint and then it gets accelerated on the back end. And I understand it's not a CDN because you're not caching at the edge, right? But there's some kind of magic that's happening there. Can you like in simple terms, explain to me like what magic is going on there? I did read something about how like multiple requests can sort of be batched on the, on the back end and minimize like the number of TCP connection round trips. But like, I sort of get it, but it's like a little bit over my head. Okay, let's take an example. So where are you? uh, uh, Where is your home? So Wisconsin in the US. Wisconsin. Yep, so so, uh, Midwest. Midwest, okay. So um, let's say you are trying to connect to an application hosted in uh, East US, let's say Virginia. Okay. Uh, So when you typically, let's say you're not using anything like Frondo, so you're trying to connect your application directly in uh, East US, so you make you first make the TCP handshake. That's a three-way handshake, right? Mm-hmm. Then you make the SSL handshake. That's again a three-way handshake. Right. Uh, and then uh, depending on and also for each and every user sitting in let's say near Wisconsin and stuff, mm-hmm. you're all making all those connections, uh, TCP and SSL handshakes to the East Coast. So let's say there are ten thousand users for your particular applications hosted in East US. Um, you're making ten thousand. TCP and SSL connections to uh, your deployment. Now, what happens with front door when you deploy a front door uh, in between? So you will typically your traffic will typically get terminated um, um, very close to you. One of the pops, I'm not sure, not super familiar with the graph uh, geography, but mm-hmm. uh, let's say uh, Cheyenne or someplace uh, in in middle US or well, it'd probably be like Chicago. Chicago is nearby. 
Yeah, so let's say Chicago. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chicago is, uh, is also a good example. Chicago or Des Moines or someplace mm-hmm. where we have our pops very close to you. So you connect to that. So mm-hmm. let's say that place is uh, five milliseconds or 10 milliseconds away from you. So you're making these TCP and SSL handshakes very, very close to you from Wisconsin, right? Yeah. And then front door to your application in East US doesn't really need to maintain um, 10,000 connections, right? We can do with just 500 or 1,000 connections because we can reuse the connection uh, over and over for different users, all users. Yeah, so I just want to make sure, are you actually, are you reusing the connection or are you doing some kind of multiplexing? No, we reuse the connection. You reuse the connections, okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure I'm clear. Yeah, so what happens is from a real world and a very layman term explanation on that is users from Wisconsin, all of them connect to this pop, let's say, in Chicago or Des Moines. And then um, from there, there's already an existing connection they can latch onto. So mm-hmm. the TCP SSL connection happened pretty fast. So you were saving tons oh, yeah. of milliseconds on that, like probably around 150 to 200 milliseconds right there just for the TCP and SSL handshake. And then from there, you already have a connection. You don't have to wait for establishing that long connection. Yeah. The other benefits you get is, let's say, there's a packet drop that happens. So again, you're not relaying it over and over from uh, like your East, East US deployment. But let's say if the packet drop happened, because the, the tr- most troublesome network is the last mile from the, our POP to so it's just over happening again or the retransmission is happening over a short distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one of the other key benefits of front door compared to some of our compete stuff is that front door actually uh, routes traffic on Microsoft's backbone on our own. Uh, that was going to be my next question. A, okay. Yeah. Which is the second largest network out there in the world. Yeah. So it's not like from our pop or what is called point of presence to mm-hmm. your application that you're going via the open internet, again, running into the same unreliability uh, issues, et cetera, of internet. Versus you actually have a dedicated freeway to take your traffic to the East US uh, deployment, right? Okay. So much more reliably, much more speed up process. Yeah. yeah. So, it, so it's like, <laughs> I'm going to really dumb this down and hopefully it's not offensive, but like, it's like if I go into like uh, Best Buy and, you know, I, I notice that something is out of stock. So then I, you know, I could call like the store in like Pennsylvania uh, but then I have to be like, yeah, I'm a customer and blah, blah, blah. But you know, if I, if I talk to the employee working there, they, they know like the secret handshake and they're like, yeah, this is 532 calling 895. Um, can I get a check on 152? And you know, then they, they get like a stock check and it's like super efficient, you know, whereas I'm dealing, yep. I'm dealing with that person on the front end who has like authenticated me already as a customer. They've already figured out what I want. And then on the back end, they're, they're sort of doing the, you know, the, the heavy lifting, but they know how to do it efficiently uh, over, yeah. you know, maybe maybe over their own phone or their own secure phone lines. Yeah. And just to add to that same, that's a brilliant example mm-hmm. as well. So just the, the guy who's sitting on the back end now also doesn't have to take 10,000 calls. He just manages like this 500 people right. across all the branch offices across all of US to right. get all and give update on the, on the stock. Right. Sort of managing all these 10,000 calls. Cool. Calls. Okay. Right. I got it now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> So when you uh, er, earlier you had mentioned that uh, you know some of the ways that you broke down making the decision between these different uh, services is if it's HTTP traffic and if it's global or, or multi-region traffic. Um, but is there uh, do these services differ or do better uh, when they're uh, in front of IaaS, uh, PaaS, or serverless? Uh, kinds of services as well. Is that something we have to think about? Uh, so, particularly uh, uh, from the way, from the nature of how uh, what our, our current offering from Azure is overall, um, 
you would see that things like uh, Azure Load Balancer and uh, even Application Gateway, um, to some extent, they are they're suited a lot more for IS, definitely. Like for uh, if you're running something in IS, uh, and you have layer seven traffic that is HTTP, HTTPS traffic, you should definitely be deploying uh, application gateway in front of it. It gives you that um, uh, endpoint that is in front of your VNet that can give you a public IP and it can load balance between your IS instances, monitor how's the health and everything uh, for you. Uh, for pass applications, uh, in, in some cases, because the pass service itself manages the routing or the load balancing between its different instances in most cases, right? So in those cases, uh, you may choose to have App Gateway if you're looking, but I mean, you can you can directly put an Azure front door instance in front of it, and you would not really need um, uh, an application gateway in some of those cases. Um, there have been some cases where people need a lot more 100%, for example, 100% SSL offload. Uh, for example, because front door is terminating the connection very close to the user in some cases, uh, and it doesn't connect to the virtual network, People want that from front door to your application also that you forward as HTTPS, which is very, and in fact, even we recommend that. And uh, they don't want to manage certificates at their app lane, uh, app end, uh, front end. So what they say is, okay, let's deploy an application gateway in front of my application, which will take care of all the SSL handshakes and everything as 100% SSL offered. And then within the VNet, I can just route over HTTP. So yeah, so, so that's a very good uh, use case as well. Uh, but in general, in a lot of cases, you will see for IS or if you're running um, Azure Kubernetes service, you will use something like uh, application gateway uh, for uh, for web traffic. Uh, for pass applications, you can use uh, Azure Front Door directly. Uh, in there, are, obviously, depending on a lot of scenario and use cases, there's a very strong requirement of using both uh, Front Door and application gateway in conjunction with each other. Okay. And then one thing that I wanted to ask about was, you know, I see a lot of sites that like throw like Cloudflare in front of their website. Usually like if it, if it's just a really basic site that, that somebody's just throwing out there, it's usually not like, well, I guess some enterprise sites and, and bigger sites will use it as well. So maybe that's not accurate, but I don't know. Like if I'm just, if I'm just throwing something out there, that's, that's maybe not like um, Microsoft.com, but I, I just have my own website. Um, instead of throwing Cloudflare on there, like what what kind of Azure service could I put in front of it that will provide me some basic like DDoS protection? Oh yeah, you can use Azure Front Door. Uh, that's a very classic uh, uh, use case if you're using uh, if uh, from Azure. Our mm-hmm. corresponding answer is Azure Front Door. It gives you the um, it gives you the web application firewall capabilities. It takes care of your certificate management and things like that. We give you free certificates as well on that. Uh, we give mm-hmm. you performance acceleration. Um, and then, um, yeah, so it works beautifully if you're using uh, Azure Front Door. Okay. And then do the other services also provide the DDoS protection? So uh, DDoS protection, for example, um, Azure Front Door itself. Um, so by the way, all services on Azure by default are uh, protected by the basic DDoS protection. Mm-hmm. Our platforms on Azure are like the, the platform itself, like Front Door or uh, App Gateway. Everything is by default protected with base, uh, basic uh, DDoS protection. If you're specifically looking for protection against your particular IP itself, so that we are filtering and doing more analysis, making more uh, checks, then you can uh, then you should use Azure DDoS protection mm-hmm. standard. Uh, Front Door, for example, uh, does one other thing, which is uh, it because it only deals with HTTP HTTPS traffic, it uh, drops any other uh, attack that comes in. For example, let's say somebody's trying to do a TCP SYN flood, or somebody's trying to make uh, attacks on non-standard HTTP, HTTPS ports, that is port 80 or 443. If you're not doing it on port 80 and 443, then again, front door will drop uh, and reject oh, each of those. So I just uh, won't requests. even get those then. That's nice. Yeah. So you get that by default with front door. You then, uh, that comes along with the uh, with the product offering itself. Okay. 
So on the other end of the scenario, um, if you have a giant global application, which service combo uh, might best suit that scenario? Oh, great question, man. Uh, so uh, just to add more context uh, again, so Front Door uh, has been, uh, it's a new service on Azure, but uh, we've been there internally for six, seven years or so. We started with Bing, uh, and then we store, uh, then we added Office 365, like Exchange, SharePoint Online, Microsoft Teams, a lot, a huge portion of all these, uh, some of the biggest web workloads are from Microsoft. They all run, they all run on Front Door. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think so, so. I think Front Door should should make it. It should cut it. <laughs> yeah, it, it'll definitely. So in terms of scale or uh, reach and things like that, we are a, you can definitely trust. So it's a, and it's the same data plane we use for uh, these uh, internal workloads uh, versus uh, for whatever what we have commercially present. Um, but uh, in in conjunction for that, uh, you should um, let's say so this that takes care of your performance acceleration, your global failover, your uh, cross-region uh, load balancing and things like that. Within the region, again, you can use um, uh, App Gateway uh, for your web workloads. Uh, particularly, I would strongly recommend using App Gateway V2 uh, because they have made a lot of optimizations, a lot of throughput, uh, performance improvements uh, into the V2 version of Application Gateway. Uh, it's able to do much, much more uh, uh, higher volumes of SSL handshakes and can handle more uh, connections and everything. So yeah, so that's it's a very standard uh, architecture that we tell our customers for people who are doing uh, very big deployments to use uh, Azure Front Door and then follow it up with uh, application gateway uh, for uh, for in-region load balancing and things like that. And then behind that, depending on what uh, compute you want to pick, compute service you want to pick. And again, there's a there's a very nice flowchart how you pick your load, uh, the compute service itself. Uh, there are cases, uh, for example, app service itself scales to a very good uh, size and things like that. Uh, Kubernetes is becoming extremely popular these days. So yeah. Okay. I mean, the fact that Microsoft is using it themselves, that's that's always a big deal. Um, I love it whenever there's a service that was built internally for crazy scale and it's like, oh, yeah, you, Mr. Customer or Mrs. Customer now have access to this service. That's that's super exciting. So is there yep. is there anything else that you wanted to mention specifically about front door? I know you're you're kind of the expert on front door. So there's probably a whole bunch of cool stuff that we didn't ask you about on front door. You want, is there anything you wanted to call out uh, there? Yeah, yeah. So uh, front door um, also at the heart of it is also a CDN. So you can also enable caching. Oh, front really? Door. Yeah. So if you want, uh, let's say you you want to cache your API responses and things like that, um, you can use front door for those things. You have. Um, well, what uh, what does that configuration look like? Can I say? Can I do it like by file type or or what does that look like? How do I tell uh, it what can, to cache? Uh, you can tell based on uh, your microservice type, like let's say based on path. It's a it typically works oh. at the path level. Oh, okay. So yeah, so let's say uh, your domain.com slash abc slash star enable caching versus xyz slash star do not enable caching. Well, that's like, super cool. Yeah. So uh, so that's one key uh, um, uh, offering from front because it's also at the heart of it. It's also CDN. While we we do tell our customers for better price point and things like that, and if you have lo- huge volumes of caching workloads, you should be using Azure CDN mm-hmm. because that's much more. You'll get much better pricing benefits because front door, as I've mentioned, it, it gives you a lot more other stuffs like performance acceleration, global load balancing, uh, web application fire, a lot of other things come with front door SSL high volumes of SSL offload and things like that. Uh, yeah, and a web application firewall is the other thing that you get. And so what happens is uh, with front door, yeah, you, any attack gets stopped at the edge itself, mm-hmm. very close to the source of the attack, rather than taking the attack down to your application boundary, again, which is 
which you should be, we also recommend if you're having multiple instances, you can apply WAF to, we tell you to uh, attach the WAF close to the source of the attack that is at the edge. Yeah. Right. And and then speaking, you know, you mentioned pricing. So I did look at like some just like super uh, basic pricing out there. And I noticed that like Azure Firewall was like an order of magnitude more expensive than than like everything else. And then it was like Azure Firewall, or sorry, uh, Azure Front Door was like next. And then, and then everything like was almost zero after that. Uh, the only, those were the only two things that were sort of a significant price. Now I assume that relates to the fact that like the more processing and just, I mean, there's just more stuff that has to get done, right? Like Azure Firewall actually has to like look at everything and figure out what is going on. And then front door is sort of the same thing, right? Cause it has to do routing and caching and all this other stuff. So is that, is that why they're, they're priced the way they are? Um, so I can tell you that actually for front door, particularly um, um, the pricing actually uh, starts very low. So yeah, I wasn't, for, yeah, I, I didn't, I, sorry if I gave the impression it was expensive. I, it actually was very reasonable. I was just looking at sort of relative starting prices and I just noticed that like firewall was, it was pretty expensive um, yeah. relative to like a CDN or something like that for sure. Yeah. So, so the thing that the chain, the, the particular thing that drives this uh, pricing economics is, whether you're running a dedicated instance or you're using a shared instance. For oh, example, okay. f- with Firewall, you actually run it uh, in your own application boundary. It's mm-hmm. a dedicated system you're running uh, that runs, whether you're having traffic or you're not having traffic, it'll continue to run uh, on during your off-peak hours, it'll continue to run during your weekends and stuff. You want, makes sense. it's an all, always present there and dedicated to your deployment. Um, with Front Door, it's a, a globally distributed multi-tenant service. Um, so, we only charge you on the traffic that you bring to us. There's, there's a minimum monthly charge, let's say, I think probably will come around $20 or something per month. But uh, that's a bare minimum that you have to pay. But if you're not having as much traffic, then you're only paying $20, $25 yeah, yeah, for that month. Yeah. Uh, along with the web application firewall capabilities, to be honest, we start at one of the lowest, lowest tiers. Like if you if you try and ask for something like WAF for a lot of the other services or uh, third-party offerings, marketplace offerings, uh, they they actually all start uh, very high, but we have a very standard like a pay as you go option for WAF, which is which is actually quite crazy in the market. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's cool. That's I mean, cool. I mean, it yeah. makes sense. Whenever if you have to do more processing on the traffic that's coming in, it should cost more. And yep. it sounds like uh, it sounds like the at, at first I was thinking the front door for like a you know if I'm going to use it for like a small site of mine it was going to be too expensive, but it actually sounds like it might be uh, might be pretty reasonable for even for that situation. Yeah, I mean. It's, and, Particularly, actually, even um, uh, you will see that a lot of these things um, uh, for for your own site, for example, mm-hmm. uh, depends. Now, are you that uh, failover sensitive? Are you that uh, performance sensitive? Probably, uh, in some cases, people are not. So, may or may not be very. But you definitely care about web application firewall. Mm-hmm. And if you're getting something for to secure your site, you don't want your site to be attacked or like information getting leaked right. all over. Right. So that is the part you want to. Put in and for probably around 40 50 bucks a month you have uh something that is accelerating your traffic that is giving you load balancing that is also giving you protection against the common vulnerabilities in the internet um and that is very uh it's actually quite low i mean to be honest mm-hmm. but as you scale let's say if you're doing if you're running a service that is doing tens and thousands of uh requests per second or even hundred thousand requests per oh, second yeah, like our like our ms dev show website <laughs> yeah. So then, so then, yeah. So then, <laughs> <laughs> you, you're laughing way too much. <laughs> oh. 
Oh, uh, we can dream. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, this 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 particular episode will get you the traffic. Map. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, to be to be uh, on a serious note, I mean, as you, as your application scales, you're still paying as you as you're consuming more traffic, and then. Mm-hmm. Obviously, for as your traffic grows beyond a certain limit, we are more than happy, like for any other Azure service as well, we are more than happy to come and negotiate and talk about the rates, et cetera, if you're looking, if you would want to get a discount and things like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Are there any times that you see that people are uh, using a load balancer when maybe another service would be more appropriate? Um, can you rephrase? I'm, I couldn't get your question. <laughs> uh, can you explain a bit more with an example, maybe? Jason, this was your question. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wasn't. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if there. If there's just. If there are times when when somebody sees a particular problem, like, oh, my website is slow, so let's bring in a load balancer. You know, like, and if it's the wrong tool for the job. So I don't know if if there's if you've ever seen a situation where a customer has used a load balancer when it was the wrong solution. Uh, so uh, depends. Uh, so. On what side of setup you have for your application, but uh, unless you're using front of which is running at the edge, mm-hmm. uh, for a typical small site um, which is not having as much traffic or anything, putting a load balancer will not speed up things. Right. It will not make it more performant. Uh, for high traffic websites, uh, what happens is yes, putting a load balancer allows you to uh, shift traffic, uh, even putting a, a application gateway or load. It will allow you to kind of uh, distribute the load more nicely across your different endpoints behind that load balancer. Uh, but it, again, only with something that is running at the edge that can you actually improve the performance of sorts. You can improve the load management, et cetera, better because that's what load balancers are meant for. Uh, and also the source of the traffic depends quite a lot. Let's say if if you are generating a lot of requests from East US, some microservice running in East US, and you are all the requests from this service is going to another instance running in East US, right? If they both are present in East US and you put something like a front door in between, it's not going to accelerate your traffic. Right. There's no, it's not going to give you any benefits. It can yeah. give you, if, if there are multiple deployments and things like that, the failovers, et cetera, might, you might benefit from. But there's no way you'll get acceleration in this particular use case. Yeah. So okay. we've had those cases. We've had some of those cases as well getting discussed. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, is there anything else then that you wanted to make sure you mentioned? Oh, uh, no, all good. Yeah, you should. It's pretty easy. Go go and try it out. Uh, okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can always submit feedbacks on uh, aka.ms slash AFD feedback, okay. or you can write to us at AFD feedback at Microsoft.com. We'll okay. be happy to answer those questions. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, in the show notes, we'll have a link back to the uh, the article uh, that, that basically helps you figure out which uh, which options you should be using in your application. So I think that makes it really easy for uh, for everybody. Cool. And then, uh, let's see here. You don't, there's no tips of the week, right, Carl? Nope. Okay. So, uh, Sharad, where can people, uh, find you? Uh, Twitter or <laughs> otherwise, well, like so, I said, we'll have your, a link to your blog post, but is that, is that your location? <laughs> uh, so, so I'm actually, uh, one of the most responsive people on that alias AFD feedback at Microsoft. Okay. So go there. The other option is you can reach out to me on Twitter at, uh, Sharad, S-H-A-R-A-D underscore Chai. That's C-H-A-I. Okay. Uh, Yeah, that's my Twitter handle. Very cool. And then, Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytiki. So, Sharad, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us not only about Azure Front Door, but about all of the other options available for your applications. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me.